Hey folks, this episode features the return of music journalist and author Michael Goldberg as he talks about his latest book, Addicted to Noise. It's a collection of his writing, his music writing over the past 40-something years. Uh, a lot of great stuff in here. We talked about his uh, interviews with Frank Zappa, George Clinton, James Brown, among others. And it was a great conversation to have with him, great following up. And um, this one is on Backbeat Books. It also features a foreword by notable music journalist Greel Marcus. Um, another great piece, front to back. This is just killer stuff, per usual. Uh, Michael Goldberg is a writer who spares no details for the sake of painting a clear picture. And uh, it is much appreciated uh, by a fellow writer and... Uh, cover of music <laughs> i also have photos up of Haley and the crushers at the redwood bar in la i finally got more than five shots before being uh trying to be extorted by some greedy venue that is not the redwood bar and grill um well, that's my new favorite place uh in downtown la uh they have a patio now which is really cool the last time i was there uh, i think i covered co-ed and uh they did not have a patio and that must have been pre-covid anyway so yeah stay tuned for those uh well they're up now instagram sketch sounds uh on my website justinbeager.com and uh along with this interview uh it's posted everywhere all platforms you're probably listening on spotify let's not pretend um, but it is on all platforms. So enjoy this interview with Michael Goldberg. Yeah. Thanks for joining me again. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, great. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate course. it. Of course. Uh, great writing. I love, I love the book. Um, I'm waiting on a copy. Uh, I ordered a copy and I, I got to hold it in my hands. You know, the PDF is great, <laughs> but I got to hold it in my hands. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is the photographs look better if you're looking at it on yeah. a computer on a you know or on a iPad, but yeah. obviously the physical book is great. I mean, yeah. I have to say it's really <laughs> yeah, like wicked game the the cover, the paper that they use, the the gloss it it feels just I don't know, it just that that feeling is just <laughs> it's un, un, yeah. uh, indescribable yeah. you know and and yeah like you said the the colors really well the black and white really pops in the in the uh, pdf which but is the, funny when you uh, i mean the um the cover of the of if i can i mean like the physical cover of the book mm. really looks really looks great that does I look mean, great um and it's a hard copy too right yeah awesome which is cool yeah, definitely cool. No, I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty thrilled about it. Yeah. And how long was this in the making, uh, collecting your works? And from, this was a, this idea. was actually a long time in the making. I mean, I would say, I would say something like six years is probably when I started. Because of course, you have to take into account that about three years was I had to take a break from it to work on the Wilsey book. Mm -hmm. um, but I started this, yeah, years ago. And one of the problems was that um, quite a few of the pieces that are in this book 
were um, <clears throat> were not digitized. I mean, mm. you know, I had old magazines, uh, or I had to find find them, you know, like through the you know the library, yeah, you know, or or um, yeah. And were then, you able to contact uh, old editors and see what they had? No, I I didn't do that. I mean, because yeah, I I didn't do that. Mm. But the thing was, I it was it was pretty intuitive in terms of which pieces I wanted in the book. I mean, at least initially. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I knew I wanted. I mean, like. The, the there's two Frank Zappa interviews, but the mm. first Frank Zappa interview uh, <clears throat> that I did for the Berkeley Barb in 1975 uh, with my wife, um, I knew I wanted that in the book. I mean, mm. that's that's the earliest piece that's that's in this book, and uh, I thought it was a really a really good and at times funny interview. And yeah, it was. So I and I, and I thought it was also a good example of me in the early days of my interviewing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I definitely wanted that, that in and then other and that's one where I had to find it. I had a, you know, and then I had to digitize it. Mm. And it's just like, you know, I mean, even if you have a, you, you know, like um, a JPEG or a you know a TIFF file mm. of of a story, then to turn it into an actual digital text that you can put into Word, mm. uh, it's just a process. I mean, this is probably really <laughs> boring to people who don't need to do it, but I mean, <laughs> you've got to or scan it, you've got to scan it or photograph it, and then you have to put it through. Google has this translate program. You got to put it through that to like, and then you've got to go through and, and proof it. And I mean, and there's a million typos that show up <laughs> during this. Yeah. And so, it's and so it, can, it can take, you know, a number of days mm. or more. Um, yeah. These aren't single page interviews or, or reviews either. They're, they're supposed to have been a process. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, and then it was like, you know, digging through boxes and boxes of, you know, of magazines that I, that I had, you know, mm. under my house. And um, mm. anyway, so it, there was that part of it. And then there was just, you know, figuring out the stories and, and then writing, you know, there's, there's new little short intros, like, you know, anywhere from a half page to sometimes almost a page mm. of, you know, of intro for each one. Mm. And um, so, you know, writing all those and uh, yeah. anyway, so yeah, I mean, it, this transpired over about six years. I mean, the fastest thing was actually um, getting a publisher was the quickest thing. It was kind of amazing. I mean, um, interesting that's usually the tough part right <laughs> yeah but you know i i asked this friend of mine pat thomas who pat is um he he does um 
he puts together albums that like like he does a lot of work for light in the attic records mm -hmm. uh, and um so and then he also has worked on a number of books he he was the editor of a collection of of Lou Reed um, articles and interviews, oh, um, okay. and, and 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 he's also written books. He wrote a book on Abby Hoffman. He wrote a book on that. I think the Black Panthers. He's he's really he's done a lot of different stuff, and I I just asked him, you know, what book companies you know do you think will be would be interested, and Backbeat Books was one of the companies that he suggested, mm -hmm. and so you know I. That's awesome. This cause sent off an email, and I mean, to them and a, a couple of others, and they got back, you know, immediately. And uh, so, oh, that's yeah, great. So that's great cool. that you saved really that cool. headache. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that could have yeah. been that could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you? What year did you get started writing? How? What? What brought you into the writing world? Well, I mean. You know, when I was in in even in elementary school, I was uh, considered a really good writer, mm -hmm. and um, and then, you know, by the time I got to high school, uh, I I started work, which which was back in, uh, you know, like sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy, that kind mm -hmm. of period. Um, I I ended up being the arts editor of the school paper. And I wrote a music a music column for the high school paper. Was the arts editor of the high school paper, and and actually, back then, um, Tom Donahue Senior, who I don't know if your listeners know who Tom Donahue was, but Tom Donahue originally he was a top forty radio DJ. Mm -hmm. He also had a record company called Autumn Records that released. Uh, albums and singles by the Bo Brummels that were produced by Sly Stone, including, you know, you know, one or two, you know, significant hits. Mm. Um, but that was kind of where Sly Stone got started. You know, at first, you know, he was, he was producing. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so Tom Donahue started the first underground FM radio station in the country, oh, which, was, cool. which was called KMPX. And I think it was 67 when he started it. Mm. And it was actually a, a foreign language station. And he went to them and he, and he got to, he got the evening hours initially. Um. And, and then he started, he, he brought in uh, these really cool DJs uh, who had really great taste in music and, they started, you know, they would be playing unreleased, you know, recordings by Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. They'd be playing, you know, there was a guy who did a like a midnight to, to four shift and he was playing all the greatest like blues and soul music you could imagine. Oh, wow. and, and back then, you know, you couldn't just dial everything up on the Internet. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so to hear this stuff because this guy had collected it was was just amazing anyway so um tom donahue's um his son was in um in my journalism class mm. and uh, we became friends and we ended up so uh, the summer when i was 17 the summer between my um junior and senior years i um 
with another with another couple of friends decided that we were going to start a rock and roll magazine. Oh, cool. And and so we actually so we were going to call the magazine Hard Road. Mm. And that was because John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, <clears throat> there was <clears throat> excuse me, there mm. was an album <clears throat> that that they put out called A Hard Road. And our idea was <clears throat> the musicians life is a really hard road. You know, for most musicians, it's really tough. Yeah. And uh, so that's where we got the idea from. And so one day, my friend and I are walking up towards the top of the driveway. This is up on Mount Tamalpais, which is in Mill Valley, California. Mm. Uh, we're walking up the road from where I parked my car to the top of the Donahue's driveway. And then we're going to walk down and, and visit. Mm. And who's standing at the top of the driveway talking to, I think maybe it was, it was Tom Donahue senior or someone mm. is Jerry Garcia. Oh, wow. And so I went up to Jerry Garcia and I said, Hey, we're starting this new magazine, a hard road. Yeah. And, uh, we'd like you to be on the cover. We, could we do an interview with you? And he says, sure. Wow. I mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> you just imagine there's a couple of 17 year old kids standing there. Man. He says, sure. And he gives us his, um, his address in Larkspur, California. Mm. And says, you know, come, I don't know, maybe it was next Tuesday. Maybe it was, you know, whatever, but you know, come at, on this day at this time and we can do an interview mm. and that happened. And that, that was so like, cool. that was like probably the <clears throat> first, that was the first significant interview that I did, you know, yeah. so 17 um, and a big one too. <laughs> wow. You know, one luck. Uh, huh? And so, so anyway, yeah. So that's kind of how, how my, uh, my journalist, I, I think of that as sort of the start of my music journalism mm. career. Oh, that's great. Great start. And uh, how did it, how did it change from that big name, your first guy to who, like the next, the next round of interviews or the next well, round of well, anything? Well, we also, I mean, like I wrote a piece in there. There were some local bands that I thought were just incredible. One was a band called Clover. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about Clover, it's because some of the members uh, played on Elvis Costello's first album, My Aim is True. Mm -hmm. But Clover were, and the reason that happened was because Elvis Costello was a huge fan of Clover when they were basically a country rock band. And they released a couple of albums on Fantasy Records, Fantasy we're hoping they were going to be the next Credence, uh, mm. Clearwater Revival. Popularity-wise, they weren't. But oh. they made two really good albums for Fantasy Records. And I was a huge fan. And there there was like, they had had like a brother band uh, called Flying Circus. And the two bands both lived out, out in uh, Muir Beach, which is like out along the coast uh you know, in the vicinity of Mill Valley and in, in Mount mm. Tamalpais. And um, so we spent, me and my friends, we spent time out there hanging out with those guys. And and I wrote, wrote a story about them for, you know, for the magazine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we, 
who else did we talk? We talked to, to a few other people, you know, so, so, you know, I just sort of plunged right in and started mm. doing, doing interviews. And, uh, but, you know, we published the one issue of that magazine and then we were sort of faced with the reality of, well, okay, now you have this magazine, but you've got to, we, you know, you had to drive around to all these different stores and like, <laughs> you know, get them to take copies. Okay. Yeah. Now they take the copies and then, then you're going to have to drive around and, you know, whatever a month later and mm -hmm. collect the money and collect the copies that didn't sell. And <laughs> I mean, and, and then meanwhile, a lot of footwork, right? Summer is ending, right? And yeah. school is starting again. And <laughs> yeah, so we didn't quite, ad I didn't anticipate everything that was involved in the, in publishing a magazine uh, right. when I was 17, right. but it was, Fair it, enough. <laughs> but it was, it was incredible experience. And I mean, after that, you know, like I say, I was the arts editor of the, of the paper, prob probably that was senior year. And then I went off to college and I, I wrote for the, for the college paper and I was, this was in Santa Cruz. I was going to UC Santa Cruz and mm. there was an underground paper in town called Sundays, S-U-N-D-A-Z-E with an exclamation mm. mark. And I started writing a music column for them. I, I do record reviews and, and did, did some feature stories for them. Mm. And uh, so things were just, just sort of developed. And then uh, at a certain point, I came back to the Bay Area and um, and I start I was also taking photographs. Mm. And so uh, so one thing that happened was this band called the Meters, who are an incredible they were an incredible New Orleans band. They mm. turned kind of turned into the Neville brothers, but and maybe I don't know if these names mean anything at this point the meters but but, uh... but but the meters were they worked with uh, alan toussaint the great new orleans writer songwriter and producer and they did their own records they backed up people i mean they were they were considered they were considered like the booker t and the mgs of of new orleans okay and and um anyway they came out here and they did a show and i saw them i took some pictures of them i met their manager mm. And I ended up, they were going to come back to town. So I interviewed their manager about the, the meters. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I, Leslie, at that point, she wasn't my wife yet. We were, she was my girlfriend. But, but um, we collaborated on an article about the meters. And I submitted the article to Francis Ford Coppola, the, rec the, the movie producer. Yeah. Okay. He, at that point had a magazine out here called city of San Francisco magazine. Mm. And he had the great Warren Hinkle um, who had been the editor of ramparts magazine. Mm. Warren Hinkle was the editor of this magazine. And so anyway, long story short, they, they ran this story on the meters and that was kind of my first break into like a real magazine. Yeah. yeah. And, and, mm. Based on that, um, my wife and I were both able to start writing for the Berkeley Barb. Mm. Based on the that that story, you know, basically because I could use that as a clip and say, you know, hey, we're writing, you know, right, we write for City of San Francisco magazine, mm. and 
you know, would you like us to do some stuff for you? You know, how about a story on such and such? And so, so then I started doing tons of, of interviews and stories. I mean, I was, you know, I did the Frank Zappa interview, interviewed Captain Beefheart, interviewed mm. Tom Waits, interviewed Amazing Rhythm Aces and uh, Jerry Jeff Walker and Towns Van Zant, And I mean, just on and on, Jesse Winchester. Uh, yeah, your spectrum is Ramones. really wide in this book. I love it. You didn't stick to like one genre or one group of people or anything. You know, you didn't just stick around Laurel Canyon or something like that. You know, you talked to everybody. It was, it was yeah, great. I mean, I, I never, that was never my thing to just hmm. be into some narrow genre. I mean, pretty early on, I, I mean, I just, I've always had an interest in a really wide range of musics. Mm. And, and in a way, I mean, I see a lot of it as, as one music. I mm. mean, I don't really think there's a difference between country music and rockabilly and blues and rock and roll. Mm. I mean, I mean, if you look at, at, at the music that was made, you know, I mean, there's plenty of country songs that are as rock and roll as, you know, a quote unquote mm. rock and roll song. Um, and I mean, the, and vice versa. Really, really these they're they're like artificial genres. I mean, art you know this artificial divisions that got yeah. that got set up. But um, and I mean, it's handy to have to be able to talk you know talk about you know a country song as opposed to a you know blues song or you know I mean you know and yeah. obviously obviously electronic music is really different than any of any of those things or you mm. know i mean rap music is really an extension um and you know hip-hop i mean i mean all of that is an extension of uh i think of, of rock and roll and blues and soul and you know yeah um so but it all has um, its roots but you know i've i've just you know liked a broad range of music and maybe part of that was that you know i grew up on top 40 radio mm. and top 40 radio would play a song by buck owens and then it would play a song by the beatles mm. and it would play james brown you know papa's got a brand new bag <laughs> y you know yeah I mean, and it might go do an oldie and play play you know an elvis you know rockabilly thing i mean you know yeah, that's just as well as you know the smoother pop stuff. Um, you know, it was that's more eclectic. What, huh? That's what radio. Yeah, that's what radio was back. You know, certainly in the '60s mm -hmm. um, until until underground FM happened at the you know at, at the very tail at the very end of the '60s. Mm -hmm. um, so subsequently, maybe maybe that's why you know I was hearing a range of music from a pretty early age. Um, but it's anyway, so you know, it's so important to have that kind of uh, exposure. I I grew up on top 40 per genre, you know, in different different uh, radio stations. So down here, it's 102.7, and 103.9. And it's all like a lot of alternative rock and a lot of just they call classic rock and and things like that. A lot of just like rock and roll and different things like that. But it's all kind of in the same families you know and i didn't grow up with a lot of hip-hop i didn't grow up with a lot of pop or things like that i had to find that stuff later which is you know it's fun to find on your own but um 
you kind of wish you know <laughs> you grew up with with an eclectic uh worldview you know yeah, or musical so, worldview anyway and then what happened was once i was writing about you know writing about musicians mm -hmm. then i mean you know I, I it it gave me opportunities to explore more deeply um different the different sort of areas of music i mean for example there was a point where uh, outlaw country music mm. happened in a big way and so that was sort of a door into country music more than just the occasional buck owens you know song or you know mm. um or you know listening to the birds do their version of country or the flying burrito brothers yeah uh, you know um uh, and there were always there always seemed to be writers that were focusing on particular genres that you know i decided to explore so i mean for example when i started looking at country music more deeply john morthland who had written for rolling stone mm -hmm. he had a book about sort of the best country records and so you could look up george jones and there would be the you know he had picked out certain albums that he thought were the the ones you should you should check out or mm. you know you know or um you know marty robbins or you know and um and then you know reggae started happening in kind of a uh, first at first an underground way but um you know when the jimmy cliff when the movie the harder the, they come mm. came out which is you know the greatest reggae movie ever um there were writers like Ed Ward, who also wrote for Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. who was writing about reggae music. And actually, a lot of the rock critics were started writing about, they wrote about Toots and the Maytals. Of course, mm -hmm. they wrote about Bob Marley, but um, but they also wrote about Toots and the Maytals and the Mighty Diamonds and the Heptones and, you know, and, yeah. and so, um, so I, you know, so I was able to like both read about these musics and and then also you know explore the music yeah because because Ooh. as a rock critic i was getting tons and tons of records in the mail all the time mm -hmm. i mean you know and so i could take down i could take the ones i didn't wasn't interested in you know olivia newton john or something and barbara streisand mm. you know i could take those records to the record store and trade them for this import uh reggae album oh, that i actually cool. had read about you know it's so even though i couldn't afford to, to you know to buy tons of records yeah. by trading the stuff that i didn't want i was able to like you know get the music uh, yeah. and be able to listen to it did they have uh, labels on those yet where they say like not for oh, emotional yeah. use and things like they that? always they always said, you know, not for sale or whatever, whatever printed yeah. on the on the on the, you know, back of the record cover. Mm. Well, but you didn't sell them. You traded them. The, so. the record stores didn't care. <laughs> Or they, they, didn't, care. they didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just take them in there. And, you know, the thing was that you'd get more or if you did credit you'd get more, you get yeah. more credit than you would yeah, get, get like money. Five bucks more. So, and the thing was that I, I wanted music. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I'm like an obsessive music person, you yeah. know? And so, and especially back then, 
Uh, you know, I mean, it it really, you know, when it's a dick called the book is called addicted to noise. I mean, yeah. that's like real, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I had to have these albums. That was, that was sort of my, uh, how I felt. Mm. Have uh, you ever gone through the, uh, through discogs and like categorized your, or cataloged all of your collection and seen that no. number of what you have? No, no, I, I, I didn't. And, and actually, I it's mean, an arduous one, process. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> no, I mean, it's a mess. I yeah. mean, I have in my, in my garage, one of my, in my garage, I've got walls of CDs mm. and, but they're not in alphabetical order. Unfortunately, I mm. wish they were. And so <laughs> it can be a very difficult process finding particular, you know, particular CDs. Uh, yeah. I've got stacks and I know where things are, but they're not in order at all <laughs> yeah but if yeah. you ask me where you know where the bob marley album is oh I, that stack over there you know <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's uh yeah it's an arduous process but um i love I, I love just collecting stuff too addicted to noise addicted to collecting the artwork i was just talking about artwork with with the, uh another another guy who designed album covers and we were just talking about the beauty of a record, an LP, and and how that's it's coming back or it's been back, but at the same time, it's like in the mass production, it's kind of lost. Uh. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, there was nothing like you know coming back from the record store, you know, with like I don't know, like you know, I you know, brand new John Wesley Harding. It's released that day, and yeah. you've got it, and yeah. you take that back to your house. And you put that record on, or you know, your parents' house. You put yeah. that record on, and then you're, and then you're just like studying that cover, you know, yeah. and the cover, and it's beautiful, and it's, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not, it's a great size. It's not, yeah. you know, I mean, this is, this is not this, you know, a CD's the size of a CD. This doesn't compare to a, to the size of a vinyl album. <laughs> and uh, I grew up on CDs, so squinting at these little, you know, at this fine print, essentially, and while listening to an album, it, it so much was lost, you know. So when I finally got into records, I, my first record was the Ram either the Ramones or Black Flag, or maybe both. I I yeah. might have gotten them both at the same time, and uh, just to be able to hold them, just that tactile feeling going back to holding your book you know it's 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 uh there's a magic to it it's hard to describe you know yeah yeah although you know on the other hand even though i i hate the um the finances for musicians mm. of of the streaming services and that yeah. just has to be rectified in some way i mean yeah. i don't know if it will be but it really it really needs to be um the fact that practically every piece of recorded music and and that's not actually really true but mm. but i mean a good relative, it, relatively speaking yeah it's all there yeah. online and you know hey you want to explore like you know marty robbins hey you can explore mm. marty robbins for the next two months you know yeah you know or or six months you know you don't have to hunt down a copy of something and yeah, I mean, on the other hand, 
that used to be kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, it was like a thing where, I mean, I just remember really from when I was like 12 or 13, every time we'd go, like we'd go to the, uh, there was like, I can't remember the name of this. Okay. Go to Woolworths, let's say. Mm. And in, and somewhere in Woolworths, there would be in the back of the store, there would be some record bins where mm. there were all these cutouts. And so, you know, with uh, religiously, yeah. if we go to Woolworths, I go to the cutout bins and you're going through and for 50 cents or, or a buck, you're, you know, you're fine. You're finding some pretty cool albums. Yeah. And, and so, you know, or, you know, and, and the, you know, the record stores, you know, would, would have their used, used sections and, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and you'd have lists of stuff you were looking for, mm -hmm. you know, late, later when I was older, you'd be, you'd, you'd, you'd pretty much have a list. You're, you're searching for this out of print album, you yeah. know, this out of print single or, you know, um, uh, that was uh that was me looking through like Filter magazine or Spin or Rolling Stone, uh, thanks to writers like you, you know, talking about music the way the way that you do. Uh, I would write things down and then head on over to wherever, even Best Buy, you know, I again CD generation, but um Best Buy or Doctor Strange Records. I, I grew up in Altaloma, California, and um. Dr. Strange Records is a major uh, distro for punk. And um, and it's just this little shop I would walk over to with a list of things that I wanted. And if they had it, great. If not, the owner would see, he'd look in the back. And, oh, maybe I got it. Actually, hold on. Yeah, give me a minute. And yeah. come out with this, you know, a seven inch of whatever I was looking for. And there it is. And yeah, I got to write it down. Or I got it from writing it down, you know, from getting it out of a magazine and there was a magic to that too, but yeah, like you said, everything's available online and that's, there is a beauty to that for sure. It's hard to rectify. They're not getting their money, but no, it's, it's no, yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. So, it's terrible I mean, situation. you know, it's like you humbly thank them and, you know, go out and buy, buy, buy an album. And well, that's <laughs> after the listening thing. To if, it. you know, if an, if I become, you know, if I listen to an album and I really dig it, Mm -hmm. it's something I know I'm going to want to listen to more multiple times, then I'll order it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, what did, what did they get on the, with radio play anyway, did radio play offer much in the way of compensation for bands or did that all just go to the label? Um. Well, no. I mean, if you were the songwriter, mm -hmm. I mean, no, you radio that, accounted right? for radio accounted for a huge amount of money. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Then that Spotify can't, and and that's still <laughs> that's still the case. But it's not the case when music is streamed online. Yeah, no ads. You and, know. Yeah. You know. So, um, well, no, but it's not that. I mean, it's like that's just how it ended up. They they managed. You know the the tech companies managed somehow to get that through. Mm -hmm. So that they didn't have to, you know, they, they could, the stuff could be streamed, you know, and um, I mean, they're, you know, they're paying a small amount to the record companies, mm -hmm. but I don't think they're paying, paying publishing. I don't no. think, I mean, 
but they're paying as little yeah. as possible. I can't imagine yeah. that they would. Um, I mean, that'd be something to, to double check, but. Because yeah. um, as far as but, I know, it's like fractions of a cent per play or something like that. Oh, it's really, no, it's really small. Yeah. I mean, it's much smaller than, um, than radio. I mean, radio, you know, I mean, if you had a hit record, you know, people mm. made, made significant money. Mm-hmm. Um, because of, because it was played on radio. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but that's not, you know, not the case. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Or, Cause now yeah. they're, now they're saying that merch is the number one source of, of income because venues aren't paying really, or I mean, they pay, but you know, there's not, you don't get so much out of that. Uh, people don't buy records as much as they used to so it's like when they do that's the money or when they buy the shirt i mean it's it's really terrible that the core Mm. thing which is the music Mm. is i mean it's it's ridiculous that the 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 core what's at the heart of all this is the music and the people that make it you know can't get aren't being paid a decent decent amount yeah that's um you know, but anyway, that's a whole, that's another, <laughs> yeah. another, another thing. Uh, yeah. But back, back to, uh, to writing. Uh, I liked this Frank Zappa piece. Uh, <laughs> I liked that. He, he was a little, he seemed confrontational. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Oh, that's like right on brand with uh, Frank Zappa with everything I know about him or knew about him at the time. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was you know, like what was, you said about Dynamo Hum. I thought that was funny. <laughs> well, it was um it was weird. I had I had gotten, you know, the Mothers of Inventions album Freak Out mm. probably I don't know, probably within a year of it being released. Um mm. you know, that was that was like maybe well, I'm I'm not sure what year that was, but it, but it was pretty early you know relatively mm. early on i was i was pretty young when when i got that and i just thought that was the the greatest album and and, and i just became this total frank zappa mothers of invention fan mm. and you know got absolutely free when that came out and we're only in it for the money and mm. i mean you know uncle mead and you know those i just thought those albums were were just genius and uh, and so going to meet Frank Zappa was a big deal for yeah. me in 1975. Yeah. Uh, and so to get in there and then to get into like an argument with Frank Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I the mean, way it reads, it, it looked like it, it broke out almost immediately. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, That's he how wouldn't, and the thing is he wouldn't let me record the interview we, so we had, we're going to have to take notes He's gonna make and, it work. <laughs> and that was like, you know, because I mean, we were figuring on, you know, it's, it's, we're going to record this. So this is going to be no problem. We'll just trans, I'll just transcribe the recording and edit it in and I'll have the Q and a interview. Yeah. And then for him to go, no, and, <laughs> you know, and us to have to, you know, try to get, try to get his answers all down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that was, I mean, Again, you know, this is early on. I I'd never been in that situation before. Um, that was my first couple of interviews, and I missed a lot. <laughs> I missed a lot of que- yeah. like a lot of answers or a lot of like, yeah, a lot of bits. 
uh, I can yeah, imagine how nerve wracking that was. Yeah, it's not it's not wait not ideal. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, but then you got another one with him, so he liked. Well, you. yeah, and that was <laughs> and the thing is that was really different. I mean, because that was like I th- you know 1980 something like that, mm-hmm. and um, and so he was in a different place, and you know I went to his house, mm-hmm. and you know he had this sort of. I don't know, I guess a sort of a study, but it, you know I mean? There was like a couch and, you know, and, and we, you know, we both were sitting and, and it was just completely different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at that point he was really into kind of articulating, you know, where he was at and what was going on. And, uh, and that was just great. I mean, I think I was there talking to him for, you know, a couple of hours at least. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and it was just it was absolutely different, you know. Yeah, I had to ask about him because I I grew up in well Altaloma Rancho Cucamonga. Um, he's uh for music fans in in my hometown, he's something of a you know local hero, and uh, I grew up yeah. up the street from his first studio, and uh, you know lifelong fan of Frank Zappa. So yeah, I mean I I really liked the mothers of invention stuff. And I mm. liked solo albums. He did like, I mean, hot rats is like a classic. I and love hot rats. Yeah. Fungus revenge is a really great album. Um, mm. Weasels rip my flesh. Um, that one but, was fun. Yeah. but, um, but later on, I mean, I wasn't a big fan. Um, yeah. I mean, it seemed to me that like his, um, his, the humor got kind of more juvenile and, um uh, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, and I'm, getting, so. I'm i'm getting older <laughs> uh, and and it's like the, the the lyrics are getting getting kind of younger and and um and so yeah i did so so i, I kind of stopped being able to really uh, appreciate what he was doing a lot of the time yeah i was trying to rectify that too because like you said big fan of mothers and most iterations of that uh of of that of those lineups um but yeah by the 80s i think that era it was like just too jokey and but but the he music did, really he, suffered he they, he did you know release some great guitar albums oh, yeah. you know li- you know from his live playing mm-hmm. and i mean those are those are like amazing some of those i mean he you know he he's i think he was a really underrated as a guitar player Mm. Um, because he had, there was so, he had so much else going on, but he's, he's up there with pretty much anyone. I oh, mean, for sure. you know, and, and much more, I think much more creative than a lot of, than quite a few guitarists that people hold up on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You, people always cite people that worked with Frank Zappa, but never, not as, not him as often, you know? Yeah, and then people like his tend to like his opinions of other guitarists, but I'm always like, did you hear the solo to Muffin Man? Like, this <laughs> is how great that was, you know? Yeah, uh, no, he's he was a great, he was really quite what a, a gem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got to ask you about your photography too, because uh, that's that was my introduction into writing. I tried to just get into a show to take pictures, um, I don't know, seven years ago. And they asked 
sure. Can you write though? And I said, I'll see what I can do. And hopefully you like what I come up with and they liked it and they got me into the show. And, uh, and then I've been doing that ever since writing and mostly photography, but writing as well. So when I saw that you were shooting as well, and we talked about this with, uh, the Wonderland show uh, with Sex Pistols and Avengers, and you right, were right up right. front. Yeah. How how often did you get into the into the pit? And uh, well, yeah, shots? I mean, I started taking pictures when I was like fourteen of of musicians. Mm. Uh, there was a uh, a festival. It preceded um, the Monterey Pop Festival mm. by a few months. It was on Mount Tamalpais in Mill Valley. Mm. And to get up there, you had to, they had buses to bus people up to this. It was a two-day festival. And and like the doors, the Jefferson Airplane, the birds, Captain Beefheart, mm. um, you know, a, a bunch of and a bunch of um, I think Big Brother, yeah, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janice Joplin. I mean, it was really um it was a great, great lineup. And uh, so I took pictures of um, of Janice and James Gurley, uh, you know, from from uh, Big Brother and mm. and uh, and also uh, Jim Morrison and, um, you know, from the doors. Yeah. Uh, and so and that was just with like a little brownie camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was my start. Yeah. And. Uh, and then as time went on, I graduated to a Pentex and, uh, you know, and then by the time I started doing interviews, photography, I mean, I studied photography um, in college. And uh, so that was just, that was a part of, of what I did. And for a number of years, I would take the photographs and write the story. So, you know, if, like when we when we interviewed Frank Zappa in 75, in that case, the Berkeley Barb sent a photographer along. Mm-hmm. But I managed when the interview was all done, I got Zappa to let me take some photographs, some portraits of him. Mm-hmm. And one of them is in this book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think it's a I think it's great. I mean, I think I've, I've always thought that was it was a really good, good portrait of him. Oh, I love uh, him on the couch, right? Yeah. 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 I love that yeah. one. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and so what was great was because I was interviewing so many of these folks in person. And so I could take pictures of them, you know, portraits of them mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going into their dressing room backstage and, you know, getting a portrait like i mean there's a picture in the book this book of ramblin jack elliot and i mean it's it's a really intense photograph i yeah. mean if you if you look at it <laughs> uh, and you know tom waits um uh, i mean this wasn't i mean concert photography is great totally great mm-hmm. but but also getting being able to like you know be four feet or three feet away from from the artist and and really get a great portrait of them uh is is a is you know that's something that's really special and you know and subsequently uh that that happened a lot and 
sadly, uh, when I started working for Rolling Stone, at that point, I really had to just focus on the stories 100%. Mm. And I had to, had to put the photography aside. It was just... They had their own. You, well, it's not just that. I mean, you just couldn't really... Um, I mean, the stories were so were often so involved, and it was so key to to catch. You know, I wanted to catch every detail of what was going on, mm. and a lot of times, I would be hanging out. It wouldn't just be like sitting down and talking to somebody in a conference room. I mean, I'd be yeah. hanging out with them over a period of days, kind mm. of going wherever they're they're going, mm. uh, and and so really needed needing to be able to just focus on on my notes you know, and taking notes on, on what everything looks like and, you know, what yeah. they're wearing and what their studio is like or what their house is like, or, you know, just all this stuff. And, um, so subsequently, um, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't do a, a lot of photography, mm. uh, you know, during well, you a, lot of, some, a lot of though. years. <laughs> you did some though, and it's great. Um, well, thank you. What a time to, like I always think if I could go back just with my Pentax, you know, uh, I've got a Pentax as well, a 35 millimeter. And like if I could just go back, you know, for a weekend somewhere with this thing and God, I would love that because I shoot digitally now and it's, you know, it's, it's fun. It's great. And it's more practical than ever, but to go back with film and, and, and in that era, in those eras, well, the, you know, the, it's so the, very different. The thing, the thing about, I mean, I'm sure the fifties, although I'm too, too young for that, but, mm. um, but the, the thing about the sixties and the seventies, uh, e edging, edging into the eighties was, um, you could, you could get access. It was, it was a whole different thing. I mean, later it just got where it just seemed like access was being as restricted as possible. Mm. Uh, and, and people had to like sign documents saying that the photo would only be for used in this certain situation. And mm -hmm. there was none of that back when I was shooting. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, it was like, yeah, th there you are in the hotel room with Frank Zappa, yeah. you know, um, for the Berkeley bar, which was not a huge paper, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an alternative paper in Berkeley, but that was enough to get get the access or mm. you know or you know you're in the studio with rick james or you know you're at somebody's house talking to, and photographing george clinton mm. um you know it was just it was a really another time and and you could you had access to people in ways that as far as i can tell you really don't have now i mean it's like obviously there are young bands mm. that one can get access to but it seems like everything happens so quickly that as soon as as an artist is at all happening you yeah. know you know by the time they're making records uh the access is being restricted and yeah the barrier to entry is it varies depending you know depending on who it is and it's nice to hear that it was easier back then too not everybody had a camera too, right? Not everybody's bombarding uh, artists with with photos. Now we all have phones and everybody's sticking their phones in a band's face and very different now. And it's understandable. Um, On the other hand, I mean, 
you know, I mean, back then, if you were shooting concert photography, usually you were using a, you had to use a flash. Mm -hmm. And so you had to like, you know, learn how to bounce the flash off the ceiling. And then so the so the light wasn't going directly onto the artist's face because yeah. that that looks terrible. So you wanted you were like bouncing the bouncing it and you know, the all this stuff that you had to like learn how to do to mm -hmm. be able to get um to get good photographs. I mean, whereas now, you know, in in most cases, you know you don't need to use any flash. I mean, you've got the, you know, you've, you've got, you know, basically the ISO let, you know, is so lets you go so deep um, yeah. that, um, you know, you can get You can get good exposures uh, with just the light that they're using, you know, to light, light the artist in the, in the facility. Exactly. Um, yeah. As a rule, I don't use flash when I, when I shoot and they don't want you to use flash anyway. The rule is, you know, first three songs, no flash. And, yeah. You have to learn to adapt to that. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, but see, back then, they had to let you use Flash because, mm -hmm. because in most cases, now there's some exceptions, but in most cases, I mean, you're shooting with Tri-X. Tri-X is ASA 400. Yeah, that you're not is getting not, it dark. <laughs> that is not giving you a lot of leeway. You know, maybe you could push it, to, you could push it to 800 or even, you know, at a certain point there was like, asa 1600 i think mm -hmm. but even asa 1600 is not it, it, it's not really enough in in a lot of cases mm -hmm. and so so you had to shoot flash and so like i say the way it would work if you were if you were bouncing it off the ceiling mm -hmm. then or you were you know you were shielding it with um you know a plastic piece that wasn't you know so that that muffled it sort of yeah then um you know, those were the kinds of things that you had to do. I mean, I was always trying to like photograph without a flash. Mm. And, you know, um, and many of the times my portraits were like, like the, the photo of Zappa that we talked about. Mm. You know, that's just done with a natural light that was in the, in the hotel room. Yeah. Uh, it came out so well too. You're shooting Tri-X 400, I take it too. And yeah. Yeah. It came out so great. No, those pictures. I mean, I have a lot of pictures that from that period, and they they really. I mean, everything was really, you know. I mean, I I knew I knew what I was doing, and the exposures came out, you know, you know, very good. And the, mm -hmm. you know, I I mean, really early. I, I was always really good at at framing. Uh, mm -hmm. I just had. I mean, maybe because all the movies I watched or something, but but I just, um, yeah, I always always kind of knew what i was what i was looking for yeah. when i was taking taking a photograph and that's uh, the beauty of uh, or that's so important because you're shooting film you can't review <laughs> your shot and i'm sure people like zappa weren't going to let you take you know 50 of them <laughs> it's like maybe you, you yeah got i mean five I mean, to ten max and <laughs> now yeah i mean i mean i would take as many pictures as i could mm -hmm. i mean like i there's a picture of the band the crime Mm. In in the in the book that goes with a uh, you know a profile that I did of did about the punk band yeah. Crime and I was with Crime I was able to shoot them at least two different times uh, and 
I'm, I must have shot each time. I must have shot two rolls of film of them. And then, and then I also shot them live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were not a popular band. So yeah. they were willing to like put up with me taking a bunch of pictures or like mm-hmm. another local band in San Francisco band, the ready maids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, same sort of deal. Or, I mean, when I, sh- I shot the nuns, you know, so the, the, they were, you know, bands that were, that were not uh, super popular yet. Uh, you know, I would try to shoot, you know, a couple of rolls of film if I possibly could, Get as much uh, as you, can. you yeah. know, but even like people like John Hammond, mm. the blues, the blues musician, um, mm. you know, I, I probably shot a roll of roll of, sh- of pictures of him in his hotel room, mm. uh, you know, and um yeah so uh, i mean and again you you could kind of push it more back then i mean it wasn't like there was i mean there were fewer there were fewer photographers there were yeah. fewer rock critics i mean everybody didn't have a camera mm-hmm. you know um so, so it, they're a little more forthcoming back then yeah yeah, yeah. That's great because yeah, nowadays it's eh, it's hit and miss. It it really depends on who you're talking to. You're yeah, talking about. and yeah, and who you're who you're doing it for, and yeah. and if if you're able to develop sort of a rapport, mm-hmm. uh, and and of course, which you have to do quickly, uh, yeah. and that's yeah. that's hard. Um, yeah, and just and just what what's the mood that they're in the the artist is in that day? You mm-hmm. know, I mean that's a that's a big deal too. That's always fun to <laughs> to navigate through that. I've had a couple of those interviews, post-show interviews, where I know they're tired and I'm not pushing it, but they still want to talk. And I'm like, if you want, sure, yeah. <laughs> but they're tired and they clearly don't want to be there, but they're they're still willing to do it. So you hey, have if to they're... navigate that and Yeah, if they're into it, go yeah. go for it. I mean, I that was my thing was I always tried to interview as to keep the interview going as long as possible mm-hmm. the more i could get the better it just gave me more to work work with yeah uh, yeah kind of the 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 big the the, I, the 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 one situation where i really took that completely over the top was i did an interview with bill graham mm-hmm. the concert promoter you know he was you know and this was going to be a Q&A interview with Bill Graham in that was going to run in Rolling Stone and uh-huh. it ended up being eight pages of Rolling Stone. Oh, so, wow. I mean, it was, yeah. And this was when Rolling Stone, I mean, it was a lar- the larger size magazine, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so I showed up at Bill Graham's place at about 9 a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. and we went probably for 10 hours and then I went home I got up in the morning. I went back to Bill Graham's place. We did another 10 hours. Really? He was, he was totally into it. Totally into it. Wow. And then I and then I sent the tapes off to, to New York. And because I was in, in the you know the Bay Area. I was I was in San Francisco. Bill Graham lived lived in Corte Madera. Uh-huh. Had a had an amazing house up up on the top of this hill in Corte Madera. And um and so I got back the transcripts and you know went through it and like edited edited you know two days worth of conversation into 
a Q&A that there was all these parts of his life that had to be covered and yeah. all these musicians he'd worked with and all I mean it was like I knew what had to be in this piece yeah. I mean <laughs> and it was like and so when I was done with that there were a bunch of holes and so then I went back and I interviewed him for another four hours to fill in the hole. Yeah. So and, uh, in a full day, 24 and, hours. Oh yeah. 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 No, I mean, absolutely. So that, that sort of took it. That was, that's where I took it to the max, I guess, in terms of interviewing one person yeah. for uh, an extended period of time. But, but it there's was welcome. Some, but there's some, um, some pretty in-depth interviews in this book. Like there's an interview with, um, with Sleater Kinney and, and it's a very in-depth interview. And they, they knew I was, uh, they knew I really appreciated their music. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it was a very relaxed conversation and they knew that I wanted to talk to them about music, you know, Mm -hmm. that I, it was, I, it wasn't, you know, it was, this wasn't a bunch of bullshit. I mean, this was yeah. like going to be, you know, this was focusing on their art and, yeah. and subsequently, you know, I'm really proud of that interview and it's, it's, it's very extensive. I don't know how many thousands of words it is, but um, you know, so that's one. And then there's an interview that Jan Uhelski and I did with Patty Smith mm. when her, uh, when she did her comeback and uh, the album gone again had just come out. And I think that's a really good interview too, and and that's also ex, you know very extensive. Um, yeah, I really like that you don't spare details. Like you 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 want to cover everything. You know, you want to ask what you want to ask, and you're you're willing to let them just spill it. You yeah, <laughs> and like you said with Sleater Kenny, they're happy that you wanted to talk music and not just I don't know. Uh, serve your own interests or you know you're not just clocking in you know well or just trying to do sort of a celebrity thing yeah you're not fawning over them just just to fawn or anything right you're you know i mean we're talking about their music we're talking about and not just their you know their new album but we but but you know their their body of work up to that point and and um, philosophical issues in terms of just dealing with, I mean, they had a situation where they came from, you know, they're like, you know, very, you know, totally obscure, you know, you know, punk bands that they were, they were in, you know, and then they came together and, you know, created Sleater Kinney and, you know, and then Sleater Kinney would first, you know, no one knew who Sleater Kinney, Kinney was. And, but they, they were slowly becoming more and more popular. Mm-hmm. And as they were becoming more popular, then they're having to deal with the things that come up when major labels start approaching. Yeah. What do you do? You know, I mean, you know, try it's, it's a trade-off, right. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, do you go for the major label, but, but, you know, he, but here we are at, you know, kill rock stars and we have total control when we're here at kill rock stars, but mm-hmm. can kill rock stars get the records everywhere that they need to be and you know what size venues do we pay do we play and i mean these are these are sort of the issues that bands come up against over and over and over again Mm. and so then they have to you know each each band each you know musician has to decide you know 
And sometimes they make the deal with the devil. And, you know, which I'm not saying that signing with a major label is the deal with the devil, but the deal with the devil is where you compromise your your ethics, you know, your morality in in some way. Yeah, Um, artistic integrity. You know, and sometimes some some artists do that and some artists don't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, Bob Dylan never did that. Mm hmm. I mean, and Bob Dylan signed to the biggest record company there was pretty much, Columbia Records. Columbia, yeah. But but he never did that. I mean, he was himself very ambitious. Mm-hmm. And he had been a rock and roller before he was a folk musician. So mm-hmm. it was not, you know, for the world outside, when Bob Dylan went from, you know, folk musician to playing rock and roll, oh my God, how could you know, the people, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, they're booing him and all that. But yeah. but for Bob Dylan, that was just coming back to what he had grown up with and what he had played, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I mean, he did, you know, he wanted to write the best songs he could write. He wanted to play the best music he could play, and he wanted wanted to um have it be as popular as possible. Mm-hmm. And um and he knew and how so, to do that. Right. And so he didn't he didn't have any problem signing with Columbia. He was it was great. He was excited to sign with Columbia Records and and John Hammond, you know, who signed him had worked with Billy Holiday and, you know, at the time was working on a Robert Johnson album and, mm-hmm. you know, of, of material that had been, you know, recorded decades mm-hmm. earlier, but that had, you know, hadn't been released on album before. Uh-huh. And you know, so, you know, but he also uh, and, and he, you know, got the, the biggest, toughest, you know, smartest manager there was Albert Grossman to manage him. Mm-hmm. I mean, so Dylan was not shying away from the music business, but he did it completely on his own terms. Yeah, you he know? was able to do that. He was able to do what a lot of you could probably say most people couldn't do. You know, like you said, it's not always signing a, the deal with the devil, but pretty often it is and you you lose creative control in so many ways and he wasn't he didn't and that's great right yeah yeah i wanted to um really quickly go back to this george clinton photo this one's yours too right yeah uh so i love this one and you were talking about framing it's perfect. And if I could show you really quick. I have, I took this oh. in Washington, D.C. of George Clinton also smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great shot. <laughs> Excellent. And when I saw that in your book, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> he's always doing this, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did like the one of Dylan too. Um, sorry, it's harder to find uh, scrolling through these uh, through the, the PDF. Um, yeah, it's that's early on the Dylan the Dylan one. I think that Dylan piece is like the third piece or something. And yeah, I just had it. Just like I accidentally uh, scheduled this for one thirty. <laughs> it's like such a sensitive scrolling that I already lost it. <laughs> There it is. There it is. The Warfield Theater, San Francisco, 1978. Yeah, it was just a, it was a lucky thing. You know, I mean, a great shot. Here, by the way. <laughs> at that point, at that point, I mean, you know, Dylan played, you know, I mean, I had seen Dylan 
in 74, he played the Oakland Coliseum, which holds, mm. you know, 16, 15, 16,000 people. And, you know, you're, you can't get anywhere near, near him, you know, mm. um, but he did that. Um, <laughs> he did those, uh, those, you know, gospel religious albums. Mm. Right. And then suddenly no one wants to go see Bob Dylan. <laughs> and so so he played the Warfield Theater, which holds, I don't know, 2,000 people maybe. And so, you know, you could get right down, you know, really, oh, right, basically right near the stage and mm. uh, and photograph him. And so I took, took advantage of that. Are you and, right at the stage here? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it looks like you're really yeah. close did you ever use a telephoto lens did you um i used an 85 millimeter lens oh okay so that let me um you know sometimes get close-ups of their you know the artist's face if i was had to pay it all depends on how close you were you know yeah you know but um yeah i didn't i didn't ever use anything more than that um i mean you know you're I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess some people did back then, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was trying, I mean, part of the thing was um, somewhere someone told me, or I read about this, but it's like, try to get as close to whoever you're photographing as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you know, don't use, a, you know, don't use a telephoto lens if you can use a 50 millimeter lens and get close enough. Move, yeah. you know, if you can move closer, that's the way to go. And um, so I, so I was always, that's what I was always shooting for. Mm -hmm. um, and and then the time when I was um, was taking all these pictures, um, and a lot of pictures I took were in clubs. Uh, if you were to a shooting in a club, you could usually get close enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, that a 50 or eight or 85 millimeter was, was plenty. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, more recently, um, I shot some, I shot digital stuff at, um, this was a few years ago, but at hardly strictly bluegrass, the mm -hmm. festival that happens up here in the park. And I was able to get, um, uh, close to the stage, but the stage was really tall. Ah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but, um, and I, so I was using, uh, I, I had a, a 300 millimeter lens. And mm. so I was using that lens. Um, and, and I got some really, really nice portraits, mm. uh, using that lens with, with, um, my digital camera. Uh, and I'm, yeah. But it's not preferable, right? You want to be up close 300 well, millimeter. I would prefer to be in a different situation than that, yeah. but, but that was the, uh, that was the situation I was in. I mean, I had an opportunity one time to, um, to shoot guided by voices on the stage. Oh, and, uh, cool. <laughs> and I got some cool, I got some cool stuff, um, mm. doing mm. that. Uh, yeah. Oh, funny story about them. I, I saw them, 2017 i think and they were on kind of a small stage um a low stage and i there was a bit of a photo pit and i was right there right in front of these guys <laughs> and it felt uncomfortable because i was so close it almost felt like i was on the stage but 
like not welcome onto the stage. They didn't know who I was. Right. And I got some great shots, but it was so close that it was too close for comfort. Right. And like, I don't know. I felt like they kept looking at me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like when's this guy going to get out of the pit? Yeah. Um, nowadays it's everybody has a camera. Everybody's trying to get into the photo pit. Uh, I imagine um, back in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. When not everybody has one, it's less obnoxious to them. And nowadays it's, it's a pretty obnoxious thing. You, you get looks from musicians all the time that, uh, from from bands all the time it's like can you get out of my face now did you get your shot now move on you know and yeah, yeah i mean I me mean, when i was shooting some stuff um at the mabue gardens and this was like 1978 mm -hmm. um <clears throat> i mean i i shot a bunch of shots of the of the avengers from the stage mm -hmm. and um and got some just great great stuff um, you know, I included some of those pictures in um, in the Jimmy Wilsey book. Mm -hmm. um, for those listeners who who aren't aware, I mean, I, I wrote this book called uh, Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey, which is um, he was the guitar player who who wrote and played um, the incredible riff that opens the Chris Isaac hit wicked game. And mm -hmm. anyway, but so in that book, I talk about, cause he was, because Wilsey was in this punk band, the Avengers, yeah. one of the, one of the great punk punk rock bands of all time, um, who are a San Francisco band. They, you know, they're playing the Mabue gardens. There's like, you know, 300 people there or something like that. And, you know, and I was just, you know, I had access to the stage yeah. and, uh, and it was, it was just great, you know, to be, because, it's just a whole different thing, you know, and you can get, you know, I have some shots of like artists from that stage where because how they've turned to face me and their backs are to the audience. So I've got the audience and then I've got yeah. them standing there and uh, just, you know, those are opportunities if you can get them. You know, you you try to get them. You got to take those uh, opportunities, too, because they don't come around too often when you get to get backstage or get onto the stage um unique shots always yeah, it's, unique just a shots and... it's just a different situation but you know i guess the, i guess it just depends on if um you know if a if a if the right kind of club shows you know opens in the right kind of place mm -hmm. and and there's a bunch of local bands and those bands i mean you know i mean that was because that was the, the scene in san francisco was you know Punk starts in New York, mm -hmm. then it ha happens in London, and it's happening in London, and all these bands are now have, are now starting in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and these are all new bands, you know. Yeah. I mean, the Nuns and Crime and Avengers and the Mutants, and you know, these are all new bands at that point in time. Yeah, and they quickly build up followings, but it's a very local scene. And subsequently, you know, I mean, and, you know, I knew the guy who was running, who was booking and running the Mabue Gardens, mm -hmm. you know, and the guy who was kind of helping him do that. And so, you know, here I was, I I did work at that point for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Berkeley Barb and the, the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And, mm -hmm. um, and so... I had carte blanche, you know, I mean, yeah. I could be, go backstage. I could, you know, basically, you know, 
it was it was just like you know you show up at the club oh you you know just walk in i mean uh you know that was a different time and that was a very localized situation and they wanted they wanted that coverage and everyone wanted that coverage the bands wanted it Mm. you know so it wasn't like oh we don't want anyone taking pictures of us oh we don't want you know what i mean it wasn't like that at all it was completely completely the opposite you know they they wanted they needed the coverage and they weren't getting it from from the mainstream you know writers music critics and Mm. you know at that point in time in san francisco so it was those of us who were who were really kind of the alternative um folks that were um were were interested Mm -hmm. and were um and were showing up there and sub you know and take taking photographs and writing reviews and writing stories and and all of that yeah i i like that it's that has continued too that um local bands always want photos when I, I i go to these local places i live in pomona um california and a couple of local spots bands come through all the time bunch of locals uh and if they see you with a the camera they're like hey hey, hey uh, can you can you send those like you know we'd love to see them and we'll post them and this and that and it's, I love it it's great <laughs> you know they yeah. want to they, yeah. they want participation and they're they're happy to do it uh, or they're happy to let you take pictures of them. And I, uh, I talked to Penelope Houston, um, not too long ago, actually. And, uh, I was asking her that I asked her the same thing. Like, did it bug you with when photographers got in your face and all that? She's like, no, <laughs> we wanted photos, you know, it was, yeah. it was great. And you're just volunteering to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, please. And, she, and the thing was, there were just some incredible photographers in mm-hmm. san francisco back then mm-hmm. back back in the in 77 78 79 80 i mean people like chester simpson and and ruby ray and there, i mean there's a book by ruby ray um uh where is that damn oh yeah it's called california cool mm. and i mean ruby ray was was just the most brilliant photographer she still is mm. but i mean back then she was she was young but she was just killer and those photographs that she took are just just amazing i mean that mm. that's that's book is like a classic and um and michael zagaris um who's who's done gone on to do um, i mean he became a photographer staff photographer for the 49ers um oh, wow. and he recently had a book of his sports photographs published but but he he has an a, a incredible book of his um his rock and roll photographs it was published um you know some a few years ago some years mm. ago much you know and um i mean and um bruce connor the artist the avant-garde artist mm. he spent part of a year taking photographs in the Mabue gardens Oh, he, got wow. ex- he got excited about what was going on there. And even though that wasn't normally the art that he did, that's something he did. And those and those photographs are are really incredible. They his punk his photographs were um there were museum shows um of Bruce Connor, like at the San Francisco Museum of Art, um, uh, maybe two years ago. He's dead now, but they mm. did this retrospective and there was a whole room devoted to his punk photography. It was oh. really cool. Um, 
yeah so i'm just saying there were there were people there at the time really good photographers you brown is another one um and uh and so you know the stars so, they, so they were like you know there was like half maybe half a dozen or so of us that were um you know we're, and at any particular show it just seemed like at the clubs when i when i was shooting stuff at, at clubs um there'd be a few photographers you know three <laughs> photographers or something maybe it just i just don't remember it it being a crowded situation or anything i mean mm -hmm. you know i got you know was able you know get really close to shoot like lou reed and and iggy pop and yeah i mean i love this lou reed shot by the way oh thank you <clears throat> it's just perfectly you know captures his essence you know <laughs> <laughs> and it seems so casual but it just it, it it was the perfect capture um and on behalf of all photographers now <laughs> that at least in my circles thank you for being there and taking pictures and <laughs> documenting all of this because it's it's great to it's just so great to look back and see that people were there people cared you know people with cameras cared you know people with pens cared enough to write about this and you know that it's, it's it's what i get to read now you know it's, I, it's... well i mean the thing is that's another thing that's really different now i mean back you know in the late 60s early 70s i mean rock and roll was at like the, the center of things mm -hmm. and i mean you know people like john lennon and dylan and you know jagger and you know they were people they were practically considered gods you know and yeah. people wanted to read interviews with them i mean people you know people look to john lennon what does john lennon think about what's going on in the world right now you know what does mm -hmm. he have to say i mean people um gave the artists a i mean it was like people expected more from them than they they I mean they were they're people you know they're just yeah. people you know but um but we didn't look at them like like they were just people um back back in those days you know and i think and it, it's re really changed i mean rock and roll is not at the heart of things anymore music is not at the heart of things mm. anymore i mean there's so many other so many other things competing for people's attention um you know so that's that's a that is a big thing that has changed um uh, in my opinion yeah since since that time um but um you know there's i mean there's stuff in this book you know i mean like you know i profiled brian wilson when he um you know basically did his first solo album mm -hmm. and and he and he was recovering from a long period of just psychosis, essentially. I mean, mm. just when where he was really messed up on drugs, and I mean, it's, it's amazing he's still alive. Yeah. But, um, but that you know that was a really interesting piece to like because he was under the, uh, I guess you could say, care in quotes of this guy, Doctor Eugene Landy, who was a therapist and who, just I mean he went over the top. I mean, he thought he was Brian Wilson and he like took songwriting credits on, on Brian Wilson's songs. Oh. He, he, um, 
you know, was like, I, th I think he's, he may be, he's probably the executive producer of the solo album. Mm. Um, he had Brian, he had a guy who was with Brian 24 seven, making sure Brian, Brian was on all these medications, uh, cause Brian was schizophrenic. Uh -huh. And, uh, so he did, if he didn't take these medications, he just started getting loony. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was almost, it was like he was under lock and key. Um, it's a very weird situation. And so, so I did a story that kind of documents that whole thing. And, mm. uh, you know, and I interviewed Rick James in jail and I went back multiple times to mm. be able to, cause you, you could only be in there for 20 minutes. So, um, so you know, turn this off. It's, you know, you can only be in there 20 minutes and mm. this is in jail, you yeah. know, and so LA County jail. And so, it was a whole procedure. I mean, you you know, you'd show up at the jail and you'd wait in line and you'd they'd get you in and then they then they go see if the prisoner is is even willing to talk to you. And then yeah. if they are, then they bring you in and you're on one side of a plexiglass thing and they're on the other. And um and you're not supposed to be recording anything. And <laughs> I I snuck a tape recorder in and I had this wire that was going it was like an ear basically it was like an ear earplug yeah but it would record and so i would <laughs> i had this wire coming up my sleeve uh -huh. coming right out of, out of here put it in my <laughs> ear i have the phone held up to my ear oh my i God. turn on the tape recorder which is a little digital tape recorder yeah and record my 20 minutes with rick james and then come back the next week and we do, do it again. again. <laughs> and then and I must have done that three or four times to get enough material yeah. for the QA, which that ran in originally ran in Vibe magazine. Um uh, and the thing is I had known Rick. Um uh, I had gotten to know him years earlier, and I had must have done about half a dozen stories on him and interviewed him at length. And um, uh, and that was all kind of before his he went crazy, you know, mm. and he and he, you know had all that, all the really crazy stuff happened. But, um, but subsequently when he was in jail, I was one reporter that he was willing to meet with because he knew that he, we'd had a really, you know, he, he could, he felt he could trust me. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so subsequently I got, I think a really good jailhouse interview. And I, so I wrote, I put in the book, I put a, a big profile that I did for Rolling Stone on him. Mm -hmm. which was which was done right after street songs and you know and and uh, super freak became his you know his huge hit yeah so i put that profile in the book and then i mm -hmm. put um the jailhouse interview uh, in the book too and i also i put two pieces i did on james brown in the book one yeah. when i went to san quentin with james brown when he did a show there to entertain the prisoners um and then that's really a a profile of James Brown, but with the set, the setting of, um, you know, of him and San Quentin. And, yeah. and he just, at one point, he's just so upset about the fact that everyone he sees and all the prisoners are either black or Brown. Mm. And he's like, this is, you know, I mean, he just, he just went off. It was, he was so, so mad about that. And, um, and rightly so. Yeah. Um, and and but then the other piece I did was after James Brown 
had his like went crazy, you know, and he was on angel dust and he like walked into a, a, a seminar with a, that near, you know, that was happening sort of near his office with a mm. shotgun. And yeah. then there was like a two state chase with the police chasing after him and he's blowing his tires out on his, <laughs> on his van and, uh, or his truck, I guess. And, and so, so that's that's a whole different story. That, that that's a story really about sort of the dark side of James Brown. Um, yeah, it's a part that people forget about. <laughs> because he he was he was one of the greatest artists of all time, and was groundbreaking in mm. terms of you know you know R and B and funk and you know what what he did. He set precedents over and over again musically, mm. but as a human being. Um, he could be a, he could be a really not a nice guy and yeah. um you know and and um anyway so the so that so but that second story kind of documents uh, a lot of that mm. uh, in the book and you know and uh you know i talked to lou reed i talked to neil young i mean there's there's just it's it's a 400 and something page book so there's mm. a lot of there, you know, there is a story that I really, um, I really love um, about sort of what I call post-punk, and the story. It's the headline of the story was "Punk Lives," and mm. this was um, was written in I don't know '86, I think. And basically, I I rode in the van to Las Vegas with Black Flag, mm. and I interviewed the Minutemen, and I I interviewed Flipper up up in the Bay Area and Husker Du and the replacements came through town. I talked to talked to them. And and so this was a story about the fact that there were a bunch of bands that because you know by you know by 86 the the whole original punk thing was was long gone. Mm -hmm. Um but um but you know the whole scene had started up in LA in yeah. the early 80s and so so that story was was really about sort of what you could call the second wave a second a second wave of punk mm. uh, and uh that especially was really, out of la so important that was really a that was that was a really exciting story to to work on and to, mm. to spend time with 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 those artists um uh, yeah yeah once again, thank you for putting this all together because this was such a gem to read. So to have all of these in one place, you know, you you talk to so many interesting people and you've gotten to meet everybody. <laughs> like everybody well, a lot, I, a lot of artists. Cool. I I did meet a lot of artists during that time. You know, and one other thing I'm really happy about is Greil Marcus wrote the forward to the book, mm. and and my in my opinion, Greil Marcus is is the greatest rock critic i mean some people you could argue that okay lester bangs but um but i but i don't know i mean Greil marcus has written so much more than lester bangs at this point so much more great work mm -hmm. um and uh you know ranging from his amazing book lipstick traces which is on sort of starts with the sex pistols and goes back through avant-garde uh, art history in europe uh, amazing book to his new book um called which is called folk music but which is a book it's basically attempts to be a biography of bob dylan through seven of bob dylan's songs oh and and it's um it's an amazing book it's oh. just an amazing book and um you know definitely want to check this out 
Yeah, no, it's 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 one of the best books ever that's ever been written about Bob Dylan. The others happen to be also by Greil Marcus and mm. happened to be one of them on on the basement tapes and one of them is all about just a single song like a Rolling Stone. Mm. And and all three of those books are are really essential to anyone who's uh, interested in in Bob Dylan. Mm. Uh, yeah. But anyway, good to know, good to uh, look forward to. Well, yeah. So anyway, thanks so much, you know, for having me. Uh, of course, of course. On the on the show, and uh, you know, the the book is addicted to noise. Um, the music writings of Michael Goldberg, and it's it should be available anywhere. Uh, the, it is on Amazon for sure. Oh, it's oh yeah, it's on, <laughs> it's on Amazon, and you could you could get it through any any bookstore, any independent bookstore, and mm. and you can you know if. You know, you can, I'm sure you could get it through Powell's online. I mean, if you mm. don't, if you're not interested in going through Amazon, mm. which some people aren't, and yeah. I understand that, um, there's plenty of independent places. Um, if you could avoid it, yeah. One, one can get it. Uh, <laughs> I do have one but, quick question. Well, oh, sure. Yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to, st- I didn't mean to stop me. If you, whatever more you have, I just. Oh, no worries. No, I, I don't want to hold you up either. I know you're no, I'm still fu- recovering I'm, too, so. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Um how do you stay motivated as a writer? This is a question uh, a fellow writer wanted to ask um, that I want to ask too. Um, how do you stay motivated to write? Well, um, I kind of have, I have the luxury at this point in my life to write about the things that I actually care about, which mm. um you know, isn't always the case. I mean, if you're um, if you're a rock critic for a daily newspaper, and you know, Journey is doing their you know comeback tour, mm-hmm. and you probably have to go and write a review of Journey, whether you want to or not. You know, yeah. um, I, I'm I don't have to do that. I mean, I you know I spent three years writing a book about Jimmy Wilsey because. I felt it was really important to do that. I, mm-hmm. That there needed to be. I felt like there needed to be a book about Jimmy Wilsey, mm-hmm. and so I spent the the time to do it. And I was, I mean, it was exciting. Every interview I did for that book, and I did a lot of them. It was uh, it was exciting to to do that and to get more information. I mean, it was like a, you know, it's like you're a private eye or something, you know, and you're like, yeah. you're, you're tracking down, you know, something, and and each each new clue, you know, that you find. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I write about, yeah, like I say, I write about things that, that I'm, um, excited about and, um, but I've, I've never really, well, I guess the only time I ever, um, I, I got to a point I had been working at Rolling Stone for, I don't know, eight, eight years, nine years. Mm -hmm. And, and I reached a point and, and that was like, I mean, that was one of the, that was probably the most, one of the most intense experiences of my life for, for nine and a half years. Mm. If you can imagine nine and a half years where, I mean, it's, it's like 24 seven. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you, you know, I mean, you know, there would be, I mean, there were times when I was, I was up for, you know, 48 hours. Oh my God. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember I was doing a story on boy George Mm. and it was going to be for this particular issue. And, and for it to be in that issue, 
it had to be done by this point in time. And, mm. and I am in England and I'm reporting, doing all the reporting and I, I've, I've done reporting and I flew back to New York. Mm. You know, I live in the Bay area, but I flew back to New York, <clears throat> went to my hotel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm. Okay. I flew back to New York, um, you know, went to my hotel, got, you know, four hours sleep or something, went to the office and wrote the story. Ugh. And I mean, Ugh. I had, you know, I had <laughs> to like, you know, there, it wasn't like there was no leeway. Yeah. They needed to have this story done. You know, it's like a 4,000 word story or something about, yeah. you know, that, you know, the decline of boy George, you know, he's mm. on heroin. He's, you know, it's a, he's, a, you know, and uh, so though there were situations like that, um, you know, and it, it wasn't all the time, but on a regular basis stuff, was, you know, and certainly, mm. I mean, it didn't matter what time, if, if somebody called me back at nine o'clock at night, yeah, you know, I turned the tape recorder on, make sure they were cool with me recording and, and I would, you know, interview them. Mm. I mean, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of how it was sometimes. I mean, you just, you know, I'd be throw putting call, you know, when a lot of the stories are like multiple source stories. Mm. And, and so I'm like, you know, leaving messages all over the place and someone calls me back. I got to be just ready to go to like, and, and just focus in and get what I need from them for this particular story that I, you know, maybe I was doing a story on the ticket scalping business, or maybe I was yeah. doing a story, you know, these were business stories, you know, doing a story on, um, you know, I did a story on fanzines. And mm. so I, you know, interviewed zillions of different people that had fanzines and, um, uh, yeah. So everybody's whole... calling you back. <laughs> or, excuse yeah, me, you, you have got, a bunch it, of people calling you back. Yeah. And so you're just like, sometimes it would just, it just seemed like you were on the phone from morning to night, you know, yeah. uh, and then you're, and then you're trying to fit in the writing. And, and uh, so, so, so I got to a point where I was just burned out. Mm. I mean, I think it was like, I had done, I had worked on at least three Michael Jackson cover stories. Mm. Okay. Three cover stories. Yeah. I mean, I mean, no small task. <laughs> by, by the time you're writing about doing the third 4,000 word story on Michael Jackson, yeah. you're like, oh my God, you know? I mean, <laughs> and so then there was, I got assigned another story on Michael Jackson. <laughs> and, and, I, I was, I was burned out on it. You know, yeah. I mean, I just had gotten to the point where I just, um, yeah, it just, it just wasn't happening for me. Um, <laughs> you just you know, stopped and, feeling it for a while. And, um, so, you know, subsequently I, I just had to take a break you mm. know, I just had to take a break. And, and then I, I mean, and then I ended up starting uh, the addicted to noise, um, online music magazine, mm. you know, which, which, you know, that, that just completely revived me because it was so exciting. Everything was, everything was new. 
Mm. It was like, you know, none of this stuff we were doing. So, so, so much of it had never been done before. And mm. uh, we had unlimited space, you know, so you could, you could like, put, put 10,000 word interview up with Patty Smith, you know, yeah. I mean, you couldn't do that for Rolling Stone. You couldn't do that anywhere else, but you could do that online. You could do it. And, that changed and, the game. And for a while, I just went crazy with like running these really long pieces and then realized, well, people don't actually want to read. A lot of times they don't want to read <laughs> such a long piece. And so then we sort <laughs> of, you know, but I mean, um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that kept me excited was writing about so many different artists mm. and, uh, and each time, you know, okay, so you're going to, you're going to um, do a profile of John Lee Hooker. Well, it's an opportunity to just completely immerse yourself in John Lee Hooker, you know, mm. I mean, to get all the music and, and to, to just dive, dive into, into it and, and really, really see what, what this particular artist is about or you know or even use that as an opportunity to really start exploring the blues yeah beyond just john lee hooker and reading all these great books that have been written about about you know the blues and blues musicians and uh you know i mean that and so that because i was um i've i've always been just completely fascinated with everything that has to do with music. I mean, recording studios mm. and, you know, and the process of touring and the making of albums and the, I mean, just all, you know, songwriting. And I mean, yeah. every sort of everything as well as the people and, you know, and how does this person get from here to here? And, and then what is it like? Okay. Now they're, now they're um, a star. Well, mm. so so what is their world like, you know, trying to trying to get up, be able to do a picture of their world, um, which, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But, yeah. um, you know, um, but anyway, so all of that stuff was really ex exciting for me. So I could. So so each time I had a had a story to work on. um there was all this stuff going on that I was, that, that was motivating me and, and mm -hmm. was, um, yeah. So, um, did you I ever mean, deal yourself wild cards with addicted to noise to stay motivated? Did you ever just, uh, dive into someone you had never or barely heard of, uh, <clears throat> or just like kind of well, find an album and you grab an album from a, a stack and say, okay, I'm going to profile this, or I'm going to, talk to this person no it was always it was always stuff that um that i wanted you know i it's always started with the music mm -hmm. if i if i you know at least the stuff that i myself chose to write about always started with the music uh, so you know i mean i'm interviewing lou reed because I was a fan of the velvet underground, you know, yeah. and, and, and his solo at work and, you know, you know, or Laurie Anderson. I mean, I, I did a story about Laurie Anderson that's in this book, uh, you know, not that long after Oh Superman was released, you know, on you know, Warner brother. I mean, originally it was released as like five, there were 500 copies or something. And, and, and this friend of hers, you know, put it out, but, but subsequently it became, 
released in England. It became popular in England, and then Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers signed her, and then they put out Oh Superman in the United States. Mm. Um, and she came to San Francisco to play um, actually at a at a movie theater um, that they sometimes used for rock shows. Mm. And um, you know, and so I just loved that song Oh Superman, and so I arranged to be able to hang out with her a bit and you know interview her. Uh, and that's really on early mm. on. I mean, she'd been around as a avant-garde artist, mm. which was a world that I really wasn't, I was aware of, but I uh, wasn't that immersed in, but, right. but my first finding out about her is, is with this record of Superman. Mm. And that's the, that was the beginning of her music career. And, um, you know, so that's why I, you know, talked to Laurie Anderson yeah, or, yeah. um, you know, um, I was a, I had been a fan of Gil Scott Heron, uh, you know, going back to the, you know, the revolution will not be televised. Mm. Um, but he had this song that was becoming a hit on on um, black radio called B Movie, which was mm. all about Ronald Reagan. And I mean, I had to talk to him about that song, yeah. you know, and so so I did. Um, so it, it you know, yeah, I mean, that's where it, it just always comes from from you know just really being into the this artist and so then i want to wanted to like talk to them yeah you know then i wanted to profile them then i wanted to to write about them and their in their music um that was was... most of the time i mean there there were stories that i you know when i was at rolling stone i got assigned stories about artists that i could care less about Mm. and it's you know and it's your job and so we, yeah. your job is to make as interesting a story as you can about this particular musician, irregardless of whether you happen to like them or not. Yeah, um, you just do it, you yeah. know. But um, but I always looked at those stories as like, well, this is a ch- as a challenge. Yeah. The challenge was, how do I write an interesting story about Loverboy? Right? <laughs> I mean, I hate Lover Boy. Okay. I mean, that's it's nothing I would ever listen to. Yeah. But they were popular at the time. Rolling Stone needed a thousand words. Yeah. And so my job was to go to where Lover Boy were, hang out with them for a couple of days mm. and write and write up a thousand words. Yeah. And so I did that. And <laughs> and the thing was, but the thing was that I found them hilarious. I mean not inadvertently hilarious yeah they didn't think they were hilarious (laughs) i thought they were hilarious so i just documented my story just documents what they're doing yeah and i think i think um, a lot of people could read that story and let's laugh laugh their asses off you know (laughs) the same time with with um oh god what's this other band the scorpions yeah oh yeah you mentioned them before (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 so i mean um yeah i mean it's like you you know you just do you know you make the best of the situation um yeah. you know write the best story you can if you're if you're trying to write if you look at it as a writer okay mm-hmm. not as a fan if you look at it as a writer like my job as a writer is to write a story that's that's going to pull somebody in from the first sentence and and they're going to they're going to read that story that's mm. my job as as a writer, and I and I got to write the most interesting story as I possibly can, and and so then whatever the subject you're writing about, okay, 
Mm. How do I make the most interesting story I can? That's my challenge. And so if that, if you're looking at it like that, then it's always exciting. You know, mm. it's always, you're, you're always motivated because you're always trying to, you know, trying to top yourself, you know, your own, you have your own, own um, standards mm. of what makes for a good story. And so you're always trying to top yourself. You're always trying to, you know, well, can I, can I do something better than what I've done before? Something different than what I've done before. Um, and so, uh, so that, that's motivating as, as well, you know. Mm. Um, good to know. Good to yeah. know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Michael Goldberg, thank you so much. Well, thank thanks. you for um, sitting in again. Uh, I don't want to hold up you hold you up for too long. It's been almost two hours, so I really oh appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you uh, hanging out for for so long. Well, I'm not cool. going well, to. I'm not going to hold this... you for 24 hours. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is fun. This is a lot of fun, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to get that book. I'm going to, I'm going to take a picture and send it to you. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. I hope to talk to you soon. Um, I'd love to do uh, follow-ups too. Um, yeah. These are, these are great. It's a pleasure talking well, to I'm, you. I can't talk about it now, but I have something coming out probably middle of next year, another book. Okay. So um, wow. awesome. So, um, and I, I know it's something you'll be interested in. So um so yeah, so we could talk again. Um, talk Great. again then. Great, yeah. Keep me posted. You've got cool. my, you've got my info. <laughs> Great, very good. Cool. All right. Thanks again. Okay. Yeah. You take See care. You later. And you so you'll email me when, um, when you're gonna post this thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna try to do it this week. I think I could post it this week. So I'll I'll send you a link uh, when it's all ready to so, go. So cut out that stuff where I'm coughing like a maniac. Um, <laughs> I did um, it a couple of times too. I'm gonna have to snip those out. Yeah. Okay. And if you need anything, you know, if you need, a, I don't know if you you probably still have a photograph. I don't know if you need a photo or you need a, a copy of the cover of the book or or anything. Just let me know. But you probably have that stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. If you have a, uh, like a headshot, a portrait or something you'd like me to use too, let me know. Or, oh, okay. or feel free to just send it over. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll email that to you. Sure. Sure. Oh, also are those shirts for sale? No, this is like the only one that exists like this. Ah. Basically <laughs> I, I uploaded the, um, the cover to, uh, I think it's called Printful. I think yeah, that's yeah. the site. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I ordered one. <laughs> Uh, I love shirts. So when I saw you, <laughs> when you first came up, it's like, oh, great. I want to get one of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, um, it's enough trying to deal with books. <laughs> fair enough. <Yeah. laughs> right. Well, okay. thanks again, Michael. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.